you all have heard me talk about our garden and our tomato plants before, but I was picking some of the tomatoes this past week and noticed that around the back of the loquat tree that's over against our fence, one of the tomato plants had actually used the tree almost like a trellis and has grown all the way up to the top of the tree, literally like nine plus feet tall right now. I had no idea how tall tomatoes would grow, given the chance. And what's especially funny about this for me is, as Meredith can attest, there was a long stretch early this spring when I was genuinely concerned if the tomato plants would ever even get started. I had planted them as seeds instead of buying the little plants like I've done in the past, and it seemed like months went by as I watered and watered and watered them with no growth to show for it whatsoever. And that's a strange place to be, watering a spot of dirt because you know there's a seed there somewhere, maybe, and that it might, should, probably grow, but you have to keep watering it because if you don't, then it's definitely not going to grow. And it feels a little foolish when, like with more than half of our artichoke seeds, you just keep watering the spot and nothing ever actually grows from it. Or something sprouts and then promptly flops over and dies. (laughs) At that point, you've just been futilely pouring water into dirt for however long. A garden, in other words, is an act of faith. Hebrews 11 is a well-known chapter about faith and the heroes of faith, and it starts with a verse that defines faith as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Maybe this is why there are so many agricultural metaphors in the Bible, because there's not a better description of what's going on when you water a patch of dirt because you're confident that in a few months you'll have 10-foot-tall tomato plants pumping out more fruit than you can handle. You hope for it but you can't see it. Not yet. But still, you water. You act as if that future were already here. Even though to all outward appearances, you're just pouring water into dry dirt. In Jeremiah, we've turned the corner into the first full-on sustained passage of hope in the book. Chapters 30 to 33 are sometimes called the book of comfort because there's such a significant turn from the first half of the book and let's be honest, much of the last half of the book too. But this section of the book is full of connections to the New Testament, as Jesus and Paul and the rest of the early Christians look back at the words that Jeremiah writes here to help explain this new thing that's happening in and through Jesus. It's a new covenant. Now, side note, the phrase New Testament is actually just the Latin version of the phrase New Covenant that Jeremiah uses in these chapters. So Jeremiah kind of named the second half of the Bible. But in the midst of all that, chapter 32 is taken up by a rather strange story. It opens in the 10th year of King Zedekiah, also known as the year 587, when Nebuchadnezzar's armies destroy Jerusalem and the temple and all of Jeremiah's prophecies of doom come to pass. So yes, that's right. In the middle of Jeremiah's book of comfort is a story about the final days of the siege of Jerusalem. (laughs) Would you expect anything else? And the way this chapter begins, you can almost imagine like a cinematic wide shot, like from a war movie or a Lord of the Rings film or something, where it starts from far above the city of Jerusalem, taking in the whole vista of massive armies surrounding the city, fires burning in a ring outside the city walls from one side of the screen to the other. And in the center, scurrying around like ants, the exhausted people of Jerusalem, desperately trying to repel the forces of Babylon. And then the camera starts to zoom in, and you can see the massive ramps of earth that are being built up against the outside of the city walls for the armies of Babylon to climb over, the arrows flying back and forth, the citizens of Jerusalem huddling together in the shelter of buildings, and the camera keeps zooming in, 
until just one building is in the frame. The windows are barred like a prison, and in the interior courtyard, surrounded by high walls of dirty stone, there's a little lump of robes and hair. And as you zoom in, you slowly recognize that the lump is a man, an old man, chained to a post. That's where we meet Jeremiah at the beginning of this chapter. Zedekiah the king has grown tired of Jeremiah's prophecies of doom because Zedekiah is trying to keep the city's morale up while the Babylonian armies besiege them from the outside. And so Zedekiah has imprisoned Jeremiah in the courtyard of the prison. And you have to imagine that Jeremiah is probably not having the best time of it as a prisoner living in an open courtyard in the middle of a besieged city on the brink of collapse. And this is important to set the stage like that because God's word comes to Jeremiah in that place, huddled in a prison courtyard. And God says, starting in verse 7, Now, Hanamel, son of Shalom, your uncle, is going to come to you. Ooh, a visit from family. That should be encouraging. Is going to come to you saying, Acquire for yourself my field and Anatot, because the right of restoration belongs to you to acquire it. In other words, this is not a visit of comfort in the book of comfort. This is a business meeting. Jeremiah is going to be asked to be what is sometimes called a kinsman redeemer. This was a way that Israelite law and custom tried to ensure that land would stay in the family. Remember, land was the source of sustenance and self-sufficiency in those days. And so the laws of Israel tried to ensure that it would remain dispersed among all the families of Israel and not get concentrated into the hands of a few rich people. If a family fell on hard times, they could sell the land, but it was expected that others from the same extended family would see it as their duty to keep the land in the family, if at all possible. But Jeremiah's cousin is going to show up and ask Jeremiah to fulfill that role. For a piece of land that is almost certainly at this very moment either being burned or trampled by the Babylonian armies. This land is literally worthless. So Jeremiah's cousin is basically seeing if he can make a quick buck before it's too late. And instead of telling his cousin to shove off, Jeremiah buys the land, although at a very low price, which just reflects how worthless the land actually was. God told him to buy it, and so he does, even though it makes absolutely no sense to have done so. In fact, in the second half of the chapter, Jeremiah goes on a long, pleading rant to God, saying, in effect, what gives? I've spent 40 years, 40 years at this point, telling people your words of destruction and judgment and destruction, and you, whose word always comes true, who has such a long track record of bringing to pass exactly what you have said will come to pass, you've said that Babylon will destroy our nation and take us all into exile. And look, the siege ramps have almost reached the top of the walls. This is verse 24. There, ramps have come to the city to capture it, and the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans, or Babylonians, who are doing battle against it because of sword, famine, and epidemic. What you said has happened. There you are, looking at it. And now you've said to me, now you've said to me, Lord Yahweh, oh, acquire the field for yourself with silver and get witnesses. And this city is given into the Chaldeans' hand. Jeremiah's like, are you just playing games with me here, God, or what? And God's response to Jeremiah's rant is to say, you're right. This doesn't make any sense. Except for one thing. Verse 27. Here I am, Yahweh, the God of all flesh. Is anything too extraordinary for me? 
is anything too extraordinary for me. Yes, everything I've said will come to pass, Jeremiah. Babylon will take control of this land, but everything I have said will come to pass. And jumping down to verse 42, just as I have brought to this people all this great evil, so I'm going to bring on them all the good things that I'm speaking about. A field will be acquired in this country of which you're saying it's a devastation without human being or animal. It's given into the Chaldeans' hand. People will acquire fields for money and write it in a document. In other words, yes, this disaster has come to pass just as I said it would, and you believed what I said. But now, believe also the even harder thing, that I will restore this people despite all appearances to the contrary. Trust me, your investment might seem like a foolish risk, but there's a future you can't see when that investment will pay off. This is, in terms of Hebrews 11, an act of faith. Confidence in things not seen, but hoped for. But this story is not primarily about Jeremiah making a shrewd long-term investment based on a word from God, as if God is in the business of giving hot real estate tips, Imagine that CNBC show. Instead, it's a parable for the people in exile about what it means to trust God from exile. Because life in exile is exactly this sort of act of faith. It's doing what doesn't seem to make sense because we hope for a future that isn't yet seen, but which we know is coming. Because Yahweh, the God of all flesh, has said that it will be so. It's undertaking risky actions for an unseen hope. God has made promises and we act on those promises, acting as if they are actually true when there's no current evidence, like buying a field that's currently serving as base camp for the armies of Babylon, or like watering a patch of dirt. The stories in the book of Daniel are stories from exile of this type of faith. All the current evidence is that the gods of Babylon are more powerful than Yahweh. Why else would we be here in exile? Obviously, their gods are stronger than ours. But we aren't going to put our trust in them. We will stick to the way of life that Yahweh has told us to follow, come what may. If you know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they say more or less the same thing to King Nebuchadnezzar. Our God will save us. But even if Yahweh does not, we're going to keep trusting our God, acting on our confidence that our future hope will somehow arrive. And so, church in exile, like Meredith said last week, how might we live by faith in exile, with confidence for the future hope that we can't see, but we believe is coming? First, let's be clear about what that future hope is. I've said before during this series that God's dream is the same now as it has been since the beginning, that all of creation would be filled with the goodness, justice, and faithfulness of God that God's people will be fully aligned with God, partners in the work of then aligning all of creation with God. Jeremiah puts it this way in chapter 31, verses 33 and 34. Because this is the covenant that I'll seal with Israel's household after those days, Yahweh's words. I am putting my teaching inside them and I'll write it on their minds and I'll be a God for them and they will be a people for me. They will no longer teach each person their neighbor and each their sibling saying, acknowledge Yahweh, because all of them will acknowledge me from the least of them to the greatest of them. Yahweh's words. 
in that future hope, there will be a people that together acknowledge God made up of individuals who acknowledge God. And what does it mean to acknowledge God? We saw that back in chapter 15, verses 15 and 16. Doing justice and making decisions for the weak and the needy. Isn't this what it means to acknowledge me, says Yahweh? That is our future hope. A time when all of creation will know God, that is, be filled with God's justice and goodness, and all people will know God and will be fully aligned with God, partners in caring for this good and just world. And so we live today as if that were true, as if that future hope was reality now. We water the dry dirt around us, making a risky investment for an unseen hope. And here's the thing. Sometimes, just like Jeremiah buying a field that's currently serving as a camp for enemy soldiers, our investments won't make any sense, at least not from the current perspective. They'll only make sense if that future unseen hope is actually true. And so we treat others with the kindness and dignity due to someone who is God's partner, God's representative. Not because they actually deserve it now, not because we have to, but because despite current appearances, that's what they will be. Following Jesus and parenting is this sort of risky investment. Not taking the shortcuts of forcing conformity as if the goal were being well-behaved good kids, but instead cultivating human beings who are created to know God and exercise their creativity in partnership with God out of their own free choice and desire to do so. Following Jesus in business is this sort of risky investment, not taking the obvious path of maximizing profit or your own career, but instead treating people, whether employees, coworkers, customers, with honesty and kindness, or maybe I should say it in terms Jeremiah might use, with justice and faithfulness. Not because it's good business or, you know, having a good reputation will be better for you in the long run, but simply because you can see a future hope of a world not devoted to profit margins and financial security. Following Jesus in our physical relationships is this sort of risky investment. This is one of the clearest examples, I think, of how following Jesus can sometimes look like a person standing there and watering a dry patch of dirt for no apparent reason. The Bible has this weird abstract idea that the sexual intimacy of two people is in some way a meaningful reflection of the intimate relationship that is the heart of God as Trinity, three persons united into one. And so that it matters that our sexual relationships reflect the character of God. Our sexual faithfulness to one another is a reflection of God's faithfulness. Sex might, to all current appearances, be a simple act of putting one body part in another body part and it feeling good. In which case, who cares when you have sex and with whom and how often? But if sex is actually mysteriously, a holy reflection of God's own character, then our sexual faithfulness matters as much as God's faithfulness. Our sexual unity, becoming one flesh, as the Bible puts it, matters as much as God's unity. Our respect of the other person's consent and freedom in the context of a sexual relationship matters as much as God's respect of our own consent and freedom in our relationship with God's self. And, as Paul points out, while sex is important in all the ways I've just said, as a reflection of how God relates to God's self and to the world, it's also only a reflection. And the path of celibacy is not one of deprivation, 
because we can still find the deeper fulfillment of relating to one another and to God that the sexual relationship is intended, again, somehow, mysteriously, intended to point to. And then finally, being the church is this sort of risky investment. Because this passage and others all through the Bible tell us that the future God promises is coming. And that by being the church, following Jesus into the world together, we are participating in that future, which is here, now, but not all the way. And we get to be a part of bringing it more and more out of the unseen future and into the present. Because as we become a community of sacrifice, openness, diversity, authenticity, and relationship, we are living as if that future hope was actually real. And we are, in some real way, making that future come more true now. Building a church together is a risky investment in an unseen hope. It means the risk of sacrificing our time and money, things that could be spent elsewhere, sometimes on really good things, because we can see a future when this little expression of the people of God, this dry patch of dirt, is bearing fruit by the basketful, showing others what it means to acknowledge God by neighboring well and doing justice and inviting them to join us in making the future hope real. It means the risk of diversity, not because that's a cool buzzword today, but because that's what the future hope looks like. And that's risky because if the goal is the church growing in numbers, all the evidence points to homogeneity, not diversity, being the fastest way of achieving that. But the goal isn't the church growing in numbers quickly. The goal is to live by faith together, living together and towards one another and towards the world as if the future hope was actually real. It means the risk of bringing our authentic selves to the community and of caring about relationships, despite the danger that comes with that. Because that future hope is of a community where we don't have to be afraid anymore where we love one another completely. And so we are going to start that now. It might be messy togetherness now, but that messy togetherness is what allows us to build together towards a future without the mess. (laughs) And finally, it means the risk of openness, of opening ourselves up to the wild, dangerous Yahweh, who, to paraphrase C.S. Lewis, is of course not safe, but is good. The God who desires to know us intimately and who might ask us, like God does Jeremiah, to take even more risks in investing in the future that we see only by faith in hints and glimmers. And so in all these ways and more, we live together as a church as if that future hope is actually coming, just like my 10-foot tall tomatoes. So from here, when we were together on Sunday, what we did is listen to a few stories about one way we can keep that future hope in front of us. Because one of the dangers of living in this actual present world is that we will start to believe that the reality we see around us is the only reality. That we will start to forget that other reality, the future unseen one. And when we start to believe that the reality of the dirt patch is the only reality, what's the point of watering? We lose confidence that those things unseen are real at all. We lose faith. I think that's why the Bible tells us to remember so often. Remember what Yahweh did in setting you free from the land of Egypt. Remember who God is. Remember who you were made to be. Remember the future hope that explains why you make the risky investment of faith now. 
And there are many ways to remember, of course, but one way that many Christians have found significant and many Jewish people found significant before Jesus is to memorize scripture, to keep the things we want to remember in our minds so that we can recall what is ultimately true, even when the reality around us is saying otherwise. And I know that some of you, your history with this practice might not be totally positive. I can remember clearly cramming as many verses as I could into my head on Sunday morning on the way to church so I could win a prize. Verses that I probably forgot after my performance for prizes. But let's not let the misuse of this practice by some prevent us from considering how it might actually benefit us if done well and for the right reasons. And so... I had asked and we heard a few stories from people in our community of passages of scripture that had been memorized by them and then had turned out to be significant in their life with God subsequently. And then we actually worked on memorizing a verse or two, a passage of scripture. We put up a few different options up on the screen and then spent a few minutes picking one and then working to memorize it. Something I would invite all of you to do as well. We can put up the list of verses that we used. Some of them were verses that the people who shared stories had used. And some are verses that talk to that future hope that I've been talking about so far. That help us to know what our faith is in, in the first place. But there are times and seasons when we have some more specific need to remember. And so if you are in one of those seasons, I would invite you to pick a passage that speaks to the season you are in. And to work on memorizing that. So we gave people time and just a couple of instructions. First was to listen to God and see if the Spirit might be leading you to a particular passage that God wants you to memorize right now. Second, to take a look at a few different translations of that passage. It might be helpful to look at some different ways that that passage has been rendered in English and see if one resonates with you more than another. Third, we suggested it might be helpful to actually write the passage out by hand. For some people, they find that it's a lot easier to remember something when they have physically written it out with a paper and pencil. And then fourth, I suggested a way of taking it slow and memorizing in chunks rather than trying to memorize a whole passage all at once. Remember, the goal is not volume here. It's not to memorize as many things as possible. It's to actually get some of the words of God into our heads so that in the future, in some situation where we wouldn't even expect it, God might bring those words to mind and help us to live in exile as if that future hope was reality. So take it slow, pick a phrase at a time, and then really get those phrases down. Once you've got the first phrase down, go to the second phrase in the verse or passage that you're dealing with. Once you've got that second phrase down, try to put the first and second phrases together and only then move on to the third phrase. And as you slowly make your way through that, Over time, you'll get all those phrases in the right order and in your brain. So I'd like to invite any of you who are listening to try this practice as well, to pick a passage of scripture and spend some time memorizing it as a way of making an investment now in a future hope that having the word of God in our brains might pay off in some way that we can't see in the present. So wherever you are, I'd invite you to turn off the podcast, find a passage, and spend a few minutes working to memorize scripture to see what God might do with that in your own life moving forward. Until next week, we love you all. Bye.